It's in the book of Hebrews. So we continue our study. Coming near to the end of Hebrews chapter 8. I wish to treat only verse 12 today. But I'm going to read again this new covenant passage from verses 7 through 13. Partly in preparation for today. And also in preparation for verse 13 next week. Please follow along as I read Hebrews 8 beginning in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand, to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord God, as we prepare our hearts for your word, we do indeed ask for your Holy Spirit to watch over us in this, that your word would come to us as you have promised that you would indeed write it on our hearts. You would indeed place it deep in our minds and cause it to move us, to move us in worship, to move us in, to adoration of you and the beauty of your new covenant and the glory of your being to have done such a thing for men. And Lord, then activate us May our actions flow forth to proclaim these truths, to live on these truths, and to see people brought to salvation because of these truths. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And everybody join me in saying, Amen. Hebrews chapter 8 is a main point. The main point of Hebrews chapter 8, a new high priest, a new covenant. The main point is the new high priest was required for the new covenant. The new covenant requires a new higher priest. And the new covenant is a better covenant that is established on better promises. And we have been looking at that better covenant and the better promises for the better part of this month. Because it is better. What a day he was declaring when he said, Behold, the days are coming. The faultlessness of man was pointed out, and it's been so evident all through the history of Scripture that Israel was indeed fallible, and they failed to follow their Lord as they should ought. So now, now we see. God stepping in, into the gap of man's failings, and picking up the pieces of man, and putting him on the right path by his own sovereign promises and his own divine will. We've looked at the sovereign responsibilities that were found. Faultless, God has no fault, and so God 
who makes a covenant so different than the Mosaic covenant that depended upon the obedience of man for the blessings to come. And their disobedience so often brought the cursings of God because of their faithlessness. So God steps in in faithfulness and faultlessness and he declares four times that he will he will bring about what the old law could not. He will change in man what man could not change. Verse 10, for this is the covenant I will make. He makes by his own will the covenant. He says, I will put my law in their minds. And then thirdly, I will write them on their hearts. And then fourthly, I will be their God. And they shall be my people. The faultless restitutions are then found, found in Chapter 10, the final portion, they shall be my people. They shall be my people. What a declaration that is. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me. They shall all know the Lord from the least to the greatest. All of these things are both the will of God in action and then the actions of people by the will of God, his own people Israel, his own people Judah. Today I want to turn our attention to the faultless repudiations that are found. The faultless repudiations found in verse 12. We've had the responsibilities that God took Restitutions, God returning to the rightful order, those things are His, His own people. And then the faultless repudiations found in verse 12. Why would I use these difficult words? Sometimes I use big words because it's only a big word that can handle the weight of what needs to be hung on them, what needs to be associated with them. What does it mean to repudiate? Why, why, Pastor, make it harder for us? It's already hard enough to understand the Bible, isn't it? Can't your outline be a little more simple? No. I don't want to lose anything. The faultless repudiations are found here when God himself again does some I wills. These are so integral. And what they do is they repudiate. To repudiate means to reject as unauthorized or as having no binding force. Repudiate also means to reject. To reject even as being unjust. So let's put it in the context. What is God doing? God is taking his people back. Sin has stolen God's people from him. And he is bringing them back. In the restitutions, we found that God even brought them back into his own ownership. They shall be mine. That's how they started. This is how they evermore shall be. But also now he is going to take away what sin does to people. The consequences of sin is a just and righteous God punishing those sins which were done against him by his own people. So the wrath of God is repudiated. The wrath of God is due his people and he will reject his own wrath by this work, by this declaration, and the judgment, the sentence of judgment that is pending upon his own people because of their rejection of him, he will repudiate. He rejects it through his promised mercy, through his promised forgiveness. Hebrews we began this book understanding these things. Chapter 1, verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, 
when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. This book began with the repudiation of all the punishments that God had designed for his sinful people paid in full. Is this not God in action helping us to get the word out this morning? Thank you, brother. I wonder because this is such an important message that even electronics can get in the way of this message to distract you. So these things are so important, so often missed, that the distractions can come in the way to steal it. Story of the sower of the seeds, remember? The word fell on ground, and then the birds of the air stole it away. They stole it away. Let's not be allowing the birds to steal this away this morning. Let's turn our attention to the faultless repudiations found, and they found here in the first of two final I wills, verse 12. God declares, for I will be merciful. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. A promised repudiation of their unrighteous acts. What does it mean to be unrighteous? It means to be wrong. There's right and there's wrong. My German father was good at explaining this. There's right and there's wrong. There's also that in everything you did in life. There's a right way to do it and there's a wrong way to do it. And if you were in our family, that way was Pop's way. But guess what? That is only training for understanding God. There's the right way and the wrong way. The right way is God's, and that's the only way. Doing it any other way is unright. It is unrighteousness. People turn from God in sin because they're sinners. They don't do what they're supposed to do. Don't love their neighbor as themselves. They don't love the Lord their God with their heart, mind, soul, and spirit. They don't honor their father and their mother. They aren't fair in the world. Israel was unrighteous. Fault was found with them. And in the face of that, we understand that they were guilty. You know, mercy only, only needs to be applied where there is fault. Where there is unrighteousness and guilt is found. Guilty as charged, we say. And the only way you can apply mercy is to a guilty person. I love this old story, and I've told it a number of times, but it comes from the days of Napoleon, the emperor. And there was a soldier who had committed crime, and he was guilty, and he was due to hang. And the mother of this soldier came to Napoleon and begged him for mercy. And Napoleon looked at this woman after she begged for the life of her son, and he said to her, but woman, He's guilty. He did it. And she looked on him with pleading in her eyes and she said, I know. I know he's guilty. That is why I beg you for mercy. Mercy and the calling on mercy is an admission of guilt. It assumes that there has been a crime committed and a criminal that has been caught. And that criminal in the case of our context is Israel and Judah. And in a further context, it is us who were born in our unrighteousness, in our sins. We deserve the wrath of God 
upon our sins. Upon our sins. We deserve it. And God declares, I will have mercy. But before we get to that, I want to bring all of us as modern people into an understanding of guilt. You will never appreciate mercy until you understand guilt. Israel will never appreciate mercy until they admit their guilt. By the way, you cannot be saved until you admit you're guilty of sin. What is it? Regrettably, we live in an age where guilt has been, like so many things, downgraded. Matter of fact, shame isn't even part of our life. But that's about all that we learn about guilt in our modern world. And even the Christian circles that we run in today and we talk in today do little about the real biblical meaning of guilt. Today it's become only seemingly a, a psychological aspect. This guilt is explored only in the feelings. The feelings that are engendered, that are responsive when an offense has been given or done, either real or imagined, the sense of deserving blame. But most often in our modern world, rather than admitting the guilt, the guilty party says, well, I just want to move past all of this. I just want to move past all of this, like as if the only person involved in the infraction was themselves. I think of the FTX scandal that is in the financial world and still raging as billions of dollars were pilfered from people as the young man Sam, who now is only known by three initials, SBF, Sam Brakeman Freed. See, we don't, we don't even name him. We don't even name him. We just give him three initials. There you go. It wasn't Sam. No, it was Sam. And he stole money from people and he spent it on himself and his friends and now it's all gone and he feels really bad about it. And that's our world. Regrettably, that's too often our world in the church where the only thing that seems to happen is just people feeling guilty. I really feel bad about that. People are honest, maybe they'd even admit that there's a sense where they even feel that there's judgment that they deserve, but rarely will they admit that. But today I want to teach about guilt from the Bible. And for guilt in the Bible, we need to start in the Old Testament and then get to the New. Hebrews is teaching us that the old Mosaic covenant is passing away. But it's gone. It's not to be looked at and followed in that wise anymore, but that does not mean he is saying we don't need to learn from it about God and about ourselves. And it's only from that that we can see this mercy in its true light and the glory of it and the selflessness of God in it. So let's go to the Old Testament and look at Look at guilt. In the Old Testament, the word for guilt is asam. Asam. And it is so interesting because it does mean guilt as in the feeling and guilt as in the knowing that you've done wrong, you've done unrighteousness, you've trespassed what God has said you're to do. But what is so interesting about this word in the Hebrew is that it is used interchangeably, not just for guilt, but for the guilt offering required because of that sin that you are guilty of 
and know it. So there is first an aspect of the wrong that was done, of the trespass or the injury that was done to another person that is brought forward from this word asam in the Old Testament. The reality of being exposed as a wrongdoer, as a sinner who is then guilty and now realizes it. We see examples of this in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, we find Saul, the first king of Israel. Israel has asked God for a king so that they can be like all the other nations. God says he's going to give them a king like themselves. And so he gives them a beautiful king, a tall king, a handsome king, a king that every person would look on and say, that guy looks like a king. Gave him Saul. And Saul is going out against Amalek in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And he's been told by God that he is to completely destroy them, kill the king of Amalek, and kill all the animals and take no plunder. They're supposed to kill it all. But Saul goes out. They have a great victory by the Lord's help and he fails to kill the pagan king Amalek. He fails to do God's will and pour out God's wrath on them through his hands. He saves the king and saves a whole bunch of the livestock behind and Samuel appears. Samuel the prophet, Samuel the priest, Samuel, the last judge of Israel, comes on the scene. And Saul says, I did everything I was supposed to. And Samuel says these very poignant but simple words. He says, then what is this bleating in my ears? We would say today, busted. There's the sheep you're supposed to kill. There are the goats you're supposed to slaughter. Right there, you were going to take them home, weren't you? And Saul says, well, it wasn't me. The people kind of want them. So I thought, well, I'll do what the people want. Is that how we worship God? Is that how we honor God? Is that how we obey God? If enough people say don't do it, we don't do it. Too often in the church, that's just the way we do it. Guilty. He's found guilty. And then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Here's where he's realizing his sin. I've sinned for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I did it. I'm guilty. Even King David, a man after God's own heart, he gets to the end of his life, the end of his ministry as king over Israel, and he's old. And he's old and he's frail. He cannot go in and out to battle anymore. And he is prompted to number Israel, meaning he's prompted to find out just how many men of fighting age he has in the kingdom who can go out to battle and be sure to win because they've got enough. And some of you might be saying, well, that just sounds like a smart thing to do. Like how many men are on your team as opposed to how many men are on their team? Well, that would be true in any other kind of contest unless God said it is he who will fight for you and with you and you need not worry about numbers and he has proved that to you time and time again like when Gideon beat it all, beat an entire army with 300 men, a few shields, a few pitchers of, of uh, empty pitchers to smash and torches because God fought for them. So David lost faith in God, put his faith in the number of men, and he sinned against God. In 1 Chronicles 21, verse 7, we read, And God was displeased with this thing. Therefore he, God, struck Israel, 
So David said to God, and here is his guilt. David said, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now, now here is where David is different than Saul. Saul blamed it on the people. But David said, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant for I have done foolishly. He takes all the blame on himself and entreats God to save his people Israel. That's the difference between guilt and repentance. Saul didn't repent. David did. They both felt the guilt but their response was very different. Old Testament guilt, a psalm, secondly, there is an aspect not just of the feeling of guilt, of the knowing you're guilty, the shame of it all, and the impending judgment. There is an aspect of debt, of debt owed, a sin or a trespass that requires restitution requires restitution, meaning basically a payment to compensate for the sin. This is where the word asam becomes now the guilt offering. You know, it's sad when I was thinking about this, I thought, what, what kind of an illustration might I use that people would understand about guilt and then the needing to pay for it? And I, I went immediately in my mind to the childhood baseball games that me and my buddies used to play. And perhaps now I could say to the soccer games. And when you don't have a big field to play on and you play on the street, on either sides of the street, there are these things called cars. And then off the street, there are these things called houses. And sadly enough, cars and houses all have windows. And in the old days, when kids used to play in the street, and this is where I kind of got sad. I said, when's the last time I ever saw kids playing in the street, a game of baseball? And I had to say, I haven't. We've lost something, folks. Kick the kids out of the house. Get them playing. I don't know if that's right to say right now, but it's something to think about. How does it happen that they're not outside anymore? And I know we live in a scary world, but I lose my illustration. We used to have balls go errant off the bat, foul ball, flying high. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, not Jenkinson's, not Jenkinson's, not Jenkinson's. <gasps> Rocky said run, not any, Rocky said it, in church. Why run? Guilt. But what's the problem with running? No guilt offering for Mr. Jameson. You think that's scary? Old Lady Radway was the real one, but I won't tell that story. You break a window, you are responsible for what you have broken. That's what we've lost in this society and even in church. There is a debt. There's a debt requirement. Listen to this from Leviticus chapter 6, starting in verse 1, beginning of the chapter. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord by lying to his neighbor about what was delivered to him for safekeeping, or about a pledge, or about a robbery, or if he has extorted from his neighbor, S-B-F, or if he has found what was lost and lies concerning it and swears falsely, in any one of these things that a man may do in which he sins, listen now, then it shall be because he has sinned and is guilty, a psalm, he shall restore a psalm what was stolen or the thing which he has extorted or what he was delivered to him for safekeeping or the lost thing which he found or all that about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore its full value. This is the heart of God, meaning you broke it, you buy it. 
But not just that, since you did it because you sinned and you stole it because you sinned, you lied about it, you owe a debt. And not just equal value, read the text. You want to follow the Mosaic law? How about this? Pay it all back and he shall restore its full value and add one-fifth more to it and give it to whomever it belongs on the day of his trespass offering. So on the day he makes a trespass offering, he is to pay one-fifth extra. Sorry, Mr. Jameson. Here's your window. And we all took up a collection. And here's one-fifth of what the window costs for your trouble that we caused. Wouldn't we be living in a different world with young people if that was done? How about with old people? Middle-aged, you name the people. But that's only the second aspect of three. And the third is the final thing we just mentioned. There needs to be a guilt offering made, not just to the one who has sinned against, but to God who has ultimately sinned against. There is an aspect of broken relationship with God whenever anyone sins. Why ask for mercy? You're guilty. Guilty for Mr. Jameson most certainly, but even more so because you broke the law of your parents saying don't play that game so close to the houses in the street. Go to the park. And then moreover, you broke your covenant with God to love your neighbor as yourself. It's with God that all sins are committed. Against God that they are tendered. It is to him the greatest debt is owed. And the Old Testament is the only place to learn this so clearly. That now, even after you've paid it back and one-fifth more, on the day you pay one-fifth more, this has to happen, Leviticus 6, 6. And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord, a ram, without blemish from the flock, with your valuation as a trespass offering to the priest. So you can't even do this without a priest. You've got a priest to do this. So interesting, we're talking about a new high priest and a God who's declaring mercy for the guilty. And the priest shall make, so the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any one of these things that he may have done in which he trespasses. It's a guilt offering. I'm guilty, Lord. And so not only the window, not only five, a fifth more, but also an offering has to be purchased and or raised from your own flocks, a blemishless one brought in and offered before the Lord. How do you think that's going to affect the wallet or the flock? This is serious. In Leviticus 5, 17, if a person sins or commits any of these things which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, Listen to this, though he does not know it. Though he does not know it. I've used this illustration several times for those of us who've ever been caught speeding when we didn't know it. And I mean literally, not just what you said, what you knew. And the police officer will say, well, you're supposed to know it. And you broke the speed limit. Doesn't matter that you didn't know what it was marked here. You're supposed to know. See, that's why God wrote it in a book and said, read the book. Then you know. But even if you don't know, this is what would happen in Israel. Yet he is guilty. Though he didn't know, yet he's guilty. And shall bear his iniquity. It's on him like a weight. And he shall bring to the priests a ram without blemish from the flock with your valuation and a trespass offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him regarding his ignorance. See, ignorance is never what? 
an excuse. In Romans 1, it says that of all unbelieving men, God declared that he is God by the very creation around them. So they are without excuse when they do not give him thanks and worship him. So the priest shall make atonement for him regarding his ignorance and the which he erred and did not know it. Listen, and it shall be forgiven him. See, there was forgiveness in the Mosaic law. There was. But it was temporary for a time. The new covenant that we are studying, it's permanent. The old law was good, but there was fault with the people. The new covenant is better because it's permanent. It is a trespass offering, verse 19, Leviticus 5. He has certainly trespassed against the Lord. Why is mercy so sweet? Because you're guilty. You deserve the everlasting punishment of God. And you know it. The new covenant is, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Did you know that in the New Testament, we even have an example of a guilt offering that we, even ourselves, can give to one another? Did you know that? Where do you suppose we might find that? We might find it in the most oft-quoted and prayed prayer in the Bible. What we call the Lord's Prayer. And how does the Lord's Prayer go? Well, it starts with God being holy. It starts with the kingdom come, but it gets to a point where it says these words. And forgive us our debts or our trespasses forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed against us <laughs> guilt offerings I sinned against you will you forgive me yes you sinned against me. You're asking for my forgiveness. Yes. But we admit feelings of guilt and we offer up a sin offering. Too many times in churches, people say, well, I'll forgive them if they ask me. They've got to admit it, or I'm not giving it. Verse 14 of Matthew 6, where I'm quoting, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive their trespasses. When you forgive others' trespasses, you're saying, I'm guilty Two, I deserve exactly what you deserve. I have in the past. I probably will in the future. But other people say, how can he do that? This is the straw that broke the camel's back. Well, get a stronger back. You're not a camel. You're a Christian who's been given the mercy of God by declaration, I will be merciful. There should be no surprise in the church of God, there should be no surprise in Israel that sin is found here. From pulpit to pew to parking lot to the police department, we're all there. Sinners, one and all. The fellowship is a fellowship of condemned, guilty sinners saved by the mercy of God, undeserved, freely given, declared in the new covenant, and permanent. 
It is no doubt that Israel was guilty. Guilt, guilt, guilt. I'm going to read a few of these things of the guilt of Israel, but I don't want you to point any fingers and say, oh, that's them. I want you to point fingers at yourself and say, if I was with them, that would have been me. Because it likely would have been. So easy to read of the sins of others in the Bible or around us in the world and self-proclaim, I would never do anything like that. I must use my perhaps too oft-used condemnation. Liar, liar, pants on fire. You're lying to yourself and to everyone else. That's why the most merciful place on earth should be the church. Because the people that really know guilt, who have had guilt offering given and taken from God, should be free to give it. But Israel, God found fault with them. They did not continue in the Mosaic Covenant. So God disregarded them, says the Lord. That's why this means so much. This is how God treated them in the past. So when this comes in the New Covenant, this means so much to them. Look at Numbers chapter 14. Good old children of Israel. They went to spy out the land one man from every tribe was sent. For 40 days they went to the promised land and looked about and found it to be promising. Glorious, fruitful, beyond their wildest dreams. And they brought back from it the produce. But when they came and when they returned and the report that 10 of the spies gave was that there's giants in the land. They look at us as grasshoppers. We can't do this. And they were right in that, but they forgot about God who said, go take it. So they sinned against God saying, you can't beat these giants. We're not going. Listen to what God did because of their guilt. God says in Numbers 14.34, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, for each day you shall bear your guilt, listen, one year. What? What? I mean, if you're Israel right now, you'd be just like, you. that's exactly what you'd be saying. 40 days and you're giving us a year for every day? That's not fair. <laughs> that's not fair. That's how we are. That is fair. God promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. said, just go in and take it. I'll fight for you. And they wouldn't go. That's what sin does. Denies the power of God. That's why Hebrews is so important that we get past denying the power of God in our own salvation when a mercy has been declared. Forty years you wander. You shall know, listen, my rejection. That's what guilt does. When you are guilty, you are rejected by God. You have a separation between yourself and God, and you know it. And there's no way for you to get back unless somebody pay the price on your behalf. In Ezra, finally we would think that Israel, the Israel from Numbers, the Israel that was in the promised land, would have learned their lesson after 40 years of wandering, but no, a few hundred years, a few kings later, and they're all thrown into captivity because they again didn't believe God, and they worshipped idols, and so God sent the Assyrians and took the ten northern tribes of Israel away to Assyria to be captives and slaves. And he then sent the king of Babylon and his mighty armies to Jerusalem and Judah and part of Benjamin and took them all away to be captives in a foreign land. And he said, 70 years, Judah, you will be in the Babylonians, but then Cyrus will come up and set you, set you free and set you back. And so Ezra is sent back by King Cyrus to rebuild the temple that has been knocked down. And Ezra is ready to go back and he finds himself among a people, and so he prays to God in this wise. 
Ezra 9, 6, and I said, oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Have you ever felt that way yourself? If you haven't, you should have. Guilty as charged and all of your sins have risen up to the heaven in a heap and a stack and a pile that you cannot unbury yourself from. They're buried in their sins and he confesses it since the day of our fathers and to this day we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings, our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, to humiliation. To this day, Ezra cries out, I'm trying to build the temple, and we've got no reason to build a temple, and we're the sinners upon sin, and it's a horrible, horrible thing. What can I do? These are a people who deserved it, as Ezekiel said, 22.3, Then say, thus says the Lord God, the city sheds blood in her own midst, that her time may come. And she makes idols for herself to defile herself. You have become guilty by the blood which you have shed and have defiled yourselves with idols which you have made you have caused your days to draw near and come to the end of your years. Therefore, I have made you a reproach to the nations, a mockery to all countries. And so Israel remains. The new covenant is to Israel and to Judah. This is the covenant I made with their fathers, which they broke. For this reason, I will make I will make a covenant with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will make. And I will have mercy on them. Until you see your sin, mercy is not sweet. Until you're dying from the load of it that's on you and it's on you, you can't say have mercy on me. Nor can you see that this declaration is something that you desire above all things. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. In Deuteronomy, the Lord promised them this years before. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob he swore that he would keep them and make them his people and make them great and kings would come from them in Nehemiah who's trying to build the wall he proclaims that they had acted proudly did not heed the commandments of the Lord, but sinned against your judgments. Verse 31 of Nehemiah chapter 9, this is stated, nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. This is the same God who showed mercy on the Gentiles of which you are part. Romans 11, verse 30. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Whose disobedience? Israel's. Even so, these also have been disobedient that Israel is being disobedient even now while we live this is true that through the mercy shown you brothers and sisters through the mercy shown you they also may obtain mercy how 
For I will be merciful to their Israel's unrighteousness. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah and you are a beneficiary of it and the mercy which you know by belief in the Lord Jesus Christ will come upon them. For God, it says in Romans 11.32, for God has committed them all to disobedience, listen, that he might have mercy on all. Why is this happening? Why doesn't Israel believe? We ask questions like that, though the text answers them. Because the time of his showing mercy to Israel has not yet come, but it will. And it's proved because you have the mercy of God and you walk around in it every day, even though some of you deny it regularly. And don't believe it. We are believers in the new covenant made with Israel and Judah and the mercy of God is what we believe in and then we believe what he did with our sins and I close rapidly. This will be a rapid descent from the heavens to the ground of earth where I hope you will stand firmly on the tarmac and walk your way in Christ in the mercy and in this feature The forgetfulness of God that is voluntary. The second I will is I will remember. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. This is the promised repudiation of their sins. No more. How many sins does God remember of yours? You who have believed on him. None. But you don't believe it. You like to list them to yourself. You like to pile them up again as high. And so that you can have an excuse for doing nothing. For wallowing in self-pity. Rather than rising up and proclaiming, a merciful God has saved me. I who is dead in my trespasses and sins. I who am an enemy of God by nature, a child of wrath. I have had the mercy of God applied to me. And I believe in his son who died in my place so that his blood covered my sins so that God will remember them no more. How much sin does he remember when he forgives? God throws it as far as the east is from the west. I can't understand that, Pastor. I can't either. But he never brings it up again. So stop. But I sinned before I came to church today. Good. And I don't mean good, do it again. I mean good. Now you can remember that you're covered in mercy constantly. That you're covered in the forgetfulness of God every single day and always will be for all the rest of eternity. He isn't counting. And when you count, you say, Jesus didn't pay at all. He paid it all. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. You can, he won't. Start living today for the Lord. The past is gone. It is done. When you're guilty, say so. When you need restitution, you make it. But you have not lost God's mercy. Because you didn't buy it. He declared it. You didn't earn it. He gave it. Oh, you out there who are dying in your sin right now, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You will be as the prodigal to him. Why did Jesus tell of the prodigal son? Why was that a parable? A parable to Israel? Because it was about Israel. Israel. 
is about us. A rich father, two sons, one a sinning profligate guy. Wanted to spend his inheritance before the time. Doesn't sound like anything like me. I would never do that. Unless given half a chance. Goes to his father, asks for his inheritance. Goes out to the world, gambles it away. Has women, has wine, has song. Ends up with nothing. Takes a job guarding pigs. And all he has is a cardamom pods around him that the pigs are eating. And he's starving to death. And he says, ah, I'm guilty. And so he determines to give a guilt offering to his father. It goes like this in Luke 15. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. In verse 19, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I spent my sonship. I took everything that meant to be a son, my inheritance, and I frittered it away. I make restitution to you. I make repayment to you. Make me a servant. Make me a slave. What's the story? Is that what his father did? That's what his big brother wanted his father to do. No, the picture is of Father God. When he really came, that's what he determined in his heart, but then he really came to his father. He walks down the road, and he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, when he's still a great way off, his father saw him. He was looking. He was looking for his son, and he saw him, and he recognized him. And the son said to him, Oh, wait, I forgot something. And the father, against all decorum, for men in those days didn't run, and against all the things that one would think he would do for the son that spent everything, had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Here's my son, and he stinks like a pig, and he's poor as a church mouse, and he's coming back to me with nothing in his hands. Compassion and kisses. You don't know God yet, do you? Till you know this parable. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father cuts him off. He cuts him off. It's his son. And he speaks. He speaks like the new covenant. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry for my son was dead. Guilty. Dead. It's spent. It's gone. He's a toasted husk. Of a human. And is alive again. He was lost. And he is found. And they began to be merry. Oh brothers and sisters. What's wrong with us? Where's our merriment? Where's our joy? I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Wah, wah. We can hardly even sing it with joy. The offering's been made. The mercy has been bestowed. You may be called, the Bible says, sons of God. So rejoice. In it, you're guilty. The price has been paid and you didn't pay it. Now live in joy. Let's pray. Help us, Lord Jesus, 
Help us, Father God, to believe that you've bestowed mercy upon Israel and Judah and you've bestowed it on us by your divine right and will that you have chosen not to remember our trespasses, our sins anymore. For all who believe on you are forgiven. For Jesus Christ paid the guilt offering and satisfied your judgment. Please give us that, Lord. For the person sitting here today who's heard these words and knows in the depths of their heart that they haven't believed in Jesus, they haven't believed God, and they know they're guilty of so many different things against parents and friends and people, against them their own selves, I beg, Lord, that they would call out right now, have mercy on me, O Lord, a sinner. Say that in your heart, have mercy on me, O Lord, a sinner. And remember my sins no more. I believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior, who died in my place, who rode again on the, rose again on the third day, and now sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for me. We pray this in Jesus' name. Please stand up with me. I'd like us to pray. A prayer of guilt and of guilt offering, the Lord's Prayer. Join me in praying. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.